In remembering the Lord's death, I was reminded of a poem that I hadn't thought of for many years. It said that this poem was cited by President Kennedy in Fort Worth the night before he died the next day in Dallas. It was written by a military man, so most of it's not relevant to the death's Lord, to the Lord's death. He fought a different kind of war. But the first line says, I have a rendezvous with death. And the last couplet says, and I to my pledged word am true. I shall not fail that rendezvous. William Randolph Hearst forbade anyone to use the word death in his presence. William Randolph Hearst is dead. Thomas Gray, in his elegy written in a country churchyard, said, The boast of heraldry, the pomp of power, and all that beauty, all that wealth e'er gave, awaits alike the inevitable hour. The paths of glory lead but to the grave. And William Cullen Bryant in Thanatopsis, which is an ode to death, said, Thoughts of the last bitter hour come like a blight, sad images of stern agony. Yet a few days, and thee, the all-beholding sun, shall see no more. Emily Dickinson sat in her upstairs bedroom in Amherst and wrote, Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. Genesis 5 says that Adam lived 930 years and he died. Seth lived 912 years and he died. Enos lived 905 years and he died. Keinan lived 910 years and he died. Mahalalel lived 895 years and he died. Jared lived 962 years and he died. Methuselah lived 969 years and he died. Lamech lived 777 years and he died. Life is short. Even at the longest, life is short. In Adam all die. 1 Corinthians 15:22. It is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. Hebrews 9:27. The living know that they shall die. Ecclesiastes 9:5. To everything there is a season. A time to be born and a time to die. Ecclesiastes 3. Someday the silver cord will break and the golden bowl be broken. Ecclesiastes 12, 1 through 5. The death rate is one per person. We are all terminal cases. No matter how young you are, No matter how healthy you think you are, death spares none. I must ultimately face our enemy, death, and at a time I may not choose. I'm going to go somewhere I have not been before. I will experience a permanent change, never to return. For as much as we are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself 
took likewise, took, took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Jesus Christ came to make that difference for us. The very first recorded words of our Lord after his resurrection were, Be not afraid. Matthew 28, verse 10. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Revelation 14, 13. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Psalm 116, verse 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, is one of the most practical, one of the most encouraging and helpful sections in the New Testament when it comes to facing mortality. When they were written, the Apostle Paul was facing death on a daily basis. Hostility had escalated, animosity and persecuted, and persecution had accelerated to a fever pitch both among the Jews plotting his life and the Gentiles who saw him as a threat to their religious and political stability. Paul wrote the second Corinthian letter under a daily sentence of death, and it shows throughout. In chapter 1, verse 4, he writes about his affliction. In chapter 1, verse 8, he says, I don't want you to be unaware of our trouble in Asia when we despaired even of life itself. In chapter 4, verse 8, he says, We are afflicted, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not despairing. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. And then, in verse 11 of chapter 4, he says, We are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. In the next verse 12, he says, Death works in us. In chapter 6, verse 4, he mentions endurance, hardships, distresses. Verse 5, beatings, imprisonments, tumults, labors, sleeplessness, hunger. Verse 9, we live as punished, yet not put to death. In chapter 7, verse 5, he talks about conflict without and fears within. Chapter 11, verse 23, Five times he received 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked, a night and a day in the sea, and on and on and on. Chapter 12, verse 12, I am well contented with weaknesses, insults, distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. So that's the context. And chapter 5 is right in the middle of that. How could Paul deal with death Every day. With what understanding did he view his earthly demise? Late in the Civil War, when General Grant was fighting a war of attrition, just pouring soldiers into the meat grinder to wear the South out, they came to Cold Harbor in 1864. Grant told his soldiers to pin their names to their shirts so they could be identified when they were dead. One Union soldier wrote in his journal, Morning, June 3rd, I died today at Cold Harbor. And he did. Paul faced death daily. 
He never lost his boldness. He faced his death courageously. In fact, he got to the place where he preferred it to his earthly life. And when you get to that point, it takes the sting of death out. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Far better to depart and be with Christ. No wonder he said in chapter 4, verse 16, that we don't lose heart. In verse 17, our light or momentary affliction is just for a moment. In verse 18, he said that he didn't look at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. You are going to die. How will you face that terminal reality? The old song said, tell me what you're going to do when death comes a-creeping in your room. Death will come to you and me like an utterly unsympathetic landlord waving an eviction notice. And that eviction notice is going to be executed the moment that enemy landlord arrives. And there won't be a thing you can do about it. Are you frightened about that? It's not going to make you homeless if you're in Christ. The sorrows, the disappointments, the depressions of this life are worse than death. If we're in Christ. And I believe that we as children of God ought to glorify God by the way that we die. You were made for heaven. And almost everything you hold dear is there. When we look death in the eye. And don't back down. That says our hope is real. The Christian faith is a realistic faith. It does not seek to gloss over the tragic aspects of life. It teaches the goodness and the love of God, but yet it admits the evil, which is part of a human experience. The Christian faith confronts the sin of man with a Savior nailed to a cross and then points triumphantly to an empty tomb. The Christian faith looks courageously at this experience we call death without becoming sentimental and without denying the reality of the event. Death is an enemy, and we recognize the pain, the loss, and the sorrow that it brings. But we're sustained by the promise of the ultimate defeat of this enemy. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. We've seen the face of this enemy all too frequently. Death has been taking our loved ones all our lives. Husbands have been separated from wives, children from parents, friends from friends, by the power of death. We could go all around the room and have each individual tell us how death has hurt them. But however, it is a strange fact of life that enemies sometimes can turn into friends. We see this among nations. We fought against England in the War of 1812, and a hundred years later, we came to her aid in World War I and bailed her out. Spain was our enemy at the turn of the 20th century, and by mid-century she was letting us build air bases on her soil. And relationships between individuals can change even more rapidly than that. The Christian view of death may be understood in these kinds of terms. While death is the last enemy to be destroyed, that destruction began with the resurrection of Jesus. He was the first fruit to them that slept, 1 Corinthians 15:20. Our Lord went down into the valley of the shadow of death. He wrestled the keys of death and Hades from him who held men all their lifetime, subject to bondage through fear of death. 
And now he lives and he reigns and death hath no more dominion over him. Jesus Christ counteracts the power of death at every point. Death is the destroyer. The Lord is the life giver. In him was life. And he came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Death brings separation. Jesus Christ unites. He went to the home of his friends in Bethany, where two sisters mourned the loss of their brother. I am the resurrection and the life, he said. And he called Lazarus out of the tomb, and the family was reunited. And he taught us that he has gone to prepare a place for us. We all anticipate the day when we will be with him, reunited with our loved ones in the Father's house. John 14, 3. When death brings sorrow, Christ brings joy. He enables us to look beyond the pains and the sufferings of this life to the wonderful life that will be ours with God. In a place where mourning, crying, and pain will be forever eliminated. Revelation 21, verse 4. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, but in Christ, the victory is already ours for the taking. We need no longer regard death as just an enemy. For us, death means rest from our labor, surcease of pain, and access to the presence of God. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-seven. For the Apostle Paul, death had become a welcome friend. And he states some reasons why in that fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians. First thing he says is that the next body is best. In verse 1, he says there that we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul says we know. This is not a wish. This is not just a possibility. This is a fixed reality. It is a settled fact. In 1 Corinthians 15, he describes at length the resurrection body. And Paul preferred death because then he'd get that glorified body. So he says, we know. He says, we know that if. Why does he say if? He says if because there was always that lingering possibility that he wouldn't die at all. Because Christ would return first. The second coming was always to be viewed as imminent. The second coming was always to be viewed by every generation as possibly coming right away. So Paul doesn't really know that he was going to die. So Paul's priority list of personal preferences went like this. Number one, Christ's return. And I think most of us can identify with that. We sing a song in our red books that says, Oh joy, oh delight, should we go without dying? No sickness, no sadness, no dread, and no sigh. That was Paul's number one possibility for preference in his priorities. The second one was to die, which he said for me is far better. And the third was to keep working here, which he said is better for you. He uses the imagery of a tent being taken down to describe death. Why does he use the imagery of a tent? Because a tent is transient. It's temporary. It's insecure. It's inferior. I saw a tent last night at the Hermans that some boys were going to sleep in. Very easy to take it down. A tent is fragile. It's frail. It's dilapidating, decaying. It's like a human body. What was Paul's occupation? He's talking right out of his own trade. He knows the strengths and weaknesses of tents. 
He knows that the tabernacle of the Hebrews had been a tent. But when Israel got into their land, they put up a more permanent temple. The body we possess in this world is like a tent, which is our house while we're here. It's of the earth, earthy. It's temporary, very fragile, frail, easily crushed. The dissolving of the tent, the tearing down, the dismantling, the folding up meant death. An Old Testament correspondence to that is in Isaiah 38, verse 12, just for comparison. Paul's body, by the time he wrote 2 Corinthians, had been battered and wounded and weakened. Death was at work in him, he said. He says if our tent is taken down, that's good because we have a building. Building suggests solidarity, foundation, fixity, security, firmness, permanency. He says, I'll gladly trade my tent for a building. So if the tent is his physical body, the building has got to be his glorified body because it's replacing the tent. Back in 414 of this same book, he said, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus. He knew that there'd be a resurrection. He knew it would be a bodily resurrection. We're shedding this tent. We're getting a building. So he said, and Wade already quoted this, but it's worth quoting again in Romans 818. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's almost exactly parallel to 2 Corinthians 4.17, which we already referenced. And then he says, The anxious longing of the creation wakes, waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. The whole universe waits for the time when the sons of God become What God intends them to become. He says we ourselves groan within ourselves. Waiting eagerly for the redemption of our body. What Paul is saying is I'm getting tired of this tent. It's decaying. It's putting tremendous limits on me. I want to go places and it sometimes doesn't want to go. I want that building. Paul's not talking about that he doesn't like what he sees in the mirror. He's not saying, well, I wish the shape of my nose was different than it is. He knew that the flesh is the beachhead for iniquity. And he's tired of that and he's ready to be rid of it. We can identify with wanting that building from God. We appreciate this one. They came through mom and dad, but we want that one from God. The best our parents could give us was a tent with all its weaknesses and its transitory character and its temporary usefulness. We want that building from God. That house not made with hands, but made by divine agency. That's what that expression always means, not made with hands. Made by divine agency. In the second chapter of John, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And commenting on that in Mark 14, 58, the Jews said, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And within three days, I will build another made without hands. The resurrection body of Jesus Christ was a body made without hands. Colossians 2, 11 refers to the circumcision made without hands. That means not a physical circumcision, but a spiritual circumcision of the heart. Hebrews 9.11 says that Christ came to a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. What does not made with hands mean? It means not man-made, not a part of this creation. Paul wants a building that's not like the one he has in this life. He wants a building eternal in the heavens. 
Everybody knows the real issue with real estate is location, location, location. Paul wants to be in heaven with a body suited to that location. The perfect vehicle for the expression of whatever has transformed his transformed nature needs to do in praising and serving God in the next world. How is God going to resurrect you? We didn't concern ourselves with the details of that. We can't understand them anyway. He's not going to have to sort through grass and cows to find you. I can assure you of that. He's not going to have to try to reassemble your molecules by putting together what used to be your physical body. In fact, if you're as old as I am, you've had several bodies already anyway. I've heard that every seven years, and I've even heard that every three years, I don't know which is right, but I think one of them is, every seven years or so, all the cells of your body are replaced. That means probably half the dust in your house is pieces of you. In 1 Corinthians 15.35, the question is asked, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? How are we going to understand a resurrection body? Paul gives an illustration from nature. He gives a series of comparisons there in 1 Corinthians 15 that I'll not go into. But in verse 42, he says, so also is the resurrection from the dead. And then a series of contrasts after that. The resurrection body will be imperishable. It will be glorious, powerful, spiritual. It cannot die. It does not diminish. It does not decay. It never deteriorates. It never grows old. And it is not replaced. It will manifest the glory of God. It will be able to do things on a heavenly plane, the likes of which we cannot begin to fathom here. It will transcend anything we know as natural. In 1 Corinthians 15 still, in verse 45, he says, The first man, Adam. Adam was physical. And from his loins has sprung the human race. Adam had a certain kind of body, and we have the same kind of body Adam had. The last Adam, though, Christ, is a quickening spirit, a life-giving spirit. When you're in this world, you're physically like Adam, bodily. When you're in glory, you're going to be like Christ, bodily. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We'll be like him in his resurrection body. That's the prototype. He's the first fruits of them that's left. Verse 49 of 1 Corinthians 15 says, As we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. The prototype is the resurrection body of Christ. He could go through walls, and yet he was recognizable. He walked, he talked, he ate. How does a resurrection body process physical fish? I have no idea, and it doesn't matter. You're not going to be a floating fog. You're not going to be Casper the Friendly Ghost. You will be you. And back in Second Corinthians 5, Paul says, If my tent is taken down, I'm moving to a better neighborhood, into a building that God is preparing for me. The next body is best. And the next life is perfect. Reading a little further here in verse 2. For in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened. Not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up.
by life. There's quite a bit there in what he just said. In this house, this body, we groan. We are uncomfortable in this body. Generally speaking, the older we get, the more uncomfortable we are in this body. Paul wanted what is mortal to be swallowed up in the fullness of life. So he's talking about putting on a new house as if it were clothing. We, having put it on, he says, shall not be found naked. Being naked would be the condition where you didn't have your resurrection body. This is the bodily resurrection, the literal bodily resurrection that is spoken of in John chapter 5, 28 and 29. Everybody in the same hour is going to have that resurrection. Now, in the Roman world, as Paul was writing these words, Gnosticism was already gaining ground. Matter is evil, spirit is good. One of the Roman thinkers said that the body is a tomb and we need to escape from it. Plotinus said that he was ashamed that he even had a body. Epictetus said of himself, thou art a poor soul burdened with a corpse. And Seneca wrote, I am a higher being and born for higher things than to be the slave of my body, which I look upon as only a shackle put upon my freedom. In so detestable a habitation dwells the free soul. And later Seneca took his own life and got out of his body. They all wanted to be released from their bodies, but Paul isn't just looking to be released from his body. He's looking for the next body. He isn't looking for nirvana. Paul is not looking for just freedom as a disembodied spirit. Paul is not waiting for the day when he's going to get absorbed into the infinite. Paul wants a body. He was designed by God to have a body. He was promised by God he'd have a body. And he wants a body in which he can be like Christ. Dualism and the principles of Gnosticism were effectively finding their way into the church already by this time. Paul had left Timothy at Ephesus to charge some that they teach no other doctrine than the apostles' doctrine. Second Timothy 2.17 mentions Hymenaeus and Philetus, they had gone astray from the truth and were upsetting the faith of some. They were saying that the resurrection was past already. I wish we knew more about precisely what it was they were saying, assuming that they knew precisely what it was they were saying. We don't know what they meant by the resurrection was past already, and we can't be clear that even they knew precisely what it meant. But it's possible that they were saying that there's only one resurrection, and that's a spiritual one, and you had it at your baptism. When you rose to walk in newness of life, and that was the resurrection, and there won't be another resurrection. At any rate, whatever they were saying, and however that might be, there was a prevailing confusion about whether there would be a real corporal resurrection in the future. But Paul had no question about it. Paul is not looking to be a floating spirit. The ancient philosophers may have longed for the nakedness of the soul, but Paul didn't. The day we receive our glorified bodies will be the height that Paul is looking for, and it will happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Until then, the most we can be are the spirits of just men made perfect. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, who have not yet received our resurrection bodies. You can't read time into eternity, and I don't believe that the dead who are waiting for their resurrection body are unhappy in their waiting, not the dead who died in Christ. We're not talking about time as you and I understand and know it here. But we are talking about a realization that there is something that has not yet occurred. I believe they have that. 
That realization that would cause the souls under the altar in Revelation 6 to ask, how long, O Lord, how long? How long is it going to be until you punish them for killing us? They knew that there was something yet to occur. There was a sense of something yet to be accomplished, something that was anticipated. Paul wanted that glorified body that would bring him to the perfection that was like his risen Lord. He wasn't satisfied just with the redemption of his soul, although that's important, but he longed for the body too. He wanted the fullness of everything that God had for him. We are intended to possess a body through which we can glorify God. And the next existence fulfills God's real purpose for us. Verse 5 says that he prepared us for this very purpose is God. He gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Just as in Romans 8.28, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Paul is looking at the purpose for which he exists. And it transcends time. It was planned in eternity past. It's fulfilled in eternity future. And time is just a little blip in the middle. Paul didn't feel this way because some friend had stopped by and pumped him up in the face of his death. Paul didn't feel this way because he suddenly had a momentary boost of adrenaline. Paul didn't feel this way because on that day he happened to be on the upside of his emotions. He faced death as he did because he knew that this was the unfolding of God's purpose. Death is an event to get past. Those in Christ who have died are already ahead of us. They're ahead of the game. Their dying troubles us far more than it troubles them. The Spirit is God's pledge that His purpose will be fulfilled. That word, Erebon, means an engagement ring. It's like a down payment. It's a first installment. It is a security. It's a guarantee. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. Paul flatly says that in the 8th chapter of the Roman letter. So early in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, we're told that he sealed us. He gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. In Ephesians 1.13, again, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is given as a guarantee that God is going to redeem his own possession, which is your body. Your body is the purchased possession. He redeemed your spirit before he redeemed your body. We're still looking forward to the redemption of our body. The next dwelling is with the Lord. He says in verse 6, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home with the body, we are absent from the Lord. Paul preferred to be at home with the Lord. What's the matter, Paul? Don't you love the people here? Of course he did. It's just that he loved the Lord more. Which do you love more, the people here or the Lord? That's a question to ask and answer privately. Paul's attitude was not the result of an emotional high. It was a settled confidence. This life is just a race to finish. This life is just a battle to win. This life is just a stewardship to honor. And there's no reason to clutch this life 
and try to hold on to it as long as possible, no matter what your circumstances are. Live with purpose and die with meaning. The reason we stay here is service. And when our service is done, we should be as eager as Paul to leave. We're of good courage because of what we know and especially of who we know. Paul is talking here about a heavenly homesickness. That's what Abraham felt when he was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. And in Revelation 21, we're told three times that God will be among them. God will be among them. God will be among them. So in verse 7, still back in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, We walk by faith, not by sight. This explains how we can serve an invisible God and how we can hope for an invisible place. We do it by faith, not by vague superstition. We believe and we live by that belief. We don't know much about heaven. We do our best to understand Ezekiel's description, if that's what Ezekiel was even talking about. We do our best to understand John's description of it. We don't get much help from Paul because when he came back, he couldn't tell us anything. Jesus said, blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. I can't see heaven. None of us can. We believe, though we don't see. So in verse 8, he says, We are confident, I say, willing rather to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. We're of good courage. We've got that heavenly homesickness. We enjoy this life. I do. I think you do. But we still got that heavenly homesickness all the time in one sense or another, to one degree or another. We're excited about going home to our home someday. Could be today. Our communication with the Lord now is through letters and phone calls. His word is the letters and the phone calls are our prayers. But if we had the choice, Paul says we'd be with him. Because precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It ought to be precious to us too. If it's precious to him. We're making our way like pilgrims toward that celestial city. Earlier, I quoted from Thanatopsis, but I didn't quote the last portion of it. The last portion of it is what you may have learned in school, in high school, if you lived long enough ago. I don't think it's taught anymore. But William Cullen Bryant was only 17 years old when he wrote this. It's an amazing piece of work. The end says, So live that when thy summons comes to join the innumerable caravan that moves to that mysterious realm, where each shall take his chamber in the silent halls of death. Thou go not like the quarry slave at night, scourged to his dungeon, but sustained and soothed by an unfaltering trust. Approach thy grave like one who wraps the drapery of his couch about him and lies down to pleasant dreams. I can't put it any better than that. This is death for the Christian. It's not something that we need to fear. It's something that in many instances we need to look forward to. I'm thinking right now of a 94-year-old sister in Christ who has been a mother in Israel, as the term was used in the Old Testament for many years. She's laying in a hospital physically, but for her, the first faint glimpse of heaven is already in view, and she's looking forward to it. She's planning on it. You can be the same way. No matter what your age is, 
And today, if you're not a part of the family of God, we want you to be. You can be the youngest child in God's family today by giving yourself to Jesus Christ in simple, trusting faith, believing in him. It's not difficult to believe in him. It's difficult to say no to yourself. That's the hard part. Not difficult to believe because we have plenty of evidence that Jesus Christ is who he claimed he was. Today, if you're willing to come to him in simple, trusting faith, accepting him at face value, giving yourself to him, repenting of your sins, confessing him, being immersed in water for the remission of your sins, to rise and walk in newness of life, or if you have anything else to bring to the assembled brethren today, let us know how we can assist you by coming up to the front as we stand together. I don't know what the number is, but we're going to sing another song.